Thank you everyone for joining us today on Zoom, on Facebook Live and on Duration Live. We ask that our, if you are with us here on Zoom, that you please accept the invitation to become a panelist so that you can share your video, but please do stay muted. This is Broken Vessels Become Bricks, Rav Menahem Nachum of Chernobyl, a class with Rabbi Dr. Ariel Mays, the first of three sessions we are holding to promote a sense of human connection with those in Ukraine. We ask that you please consider donating to efforts to provide direct release. A link to a file, file with some organizations providing aid is available in the chat or will be soon, uh, as well as a link to the source sheet for this session. Before we begin, Rabbi Silver, the founder and Dean of Grisha, will provide us with prayer and a brief moment of silence. All right, thank you. Um, I just wanted, before we uh, begin the study, I just briefly wanted to, um, of course, been thinking about the situation, uh, the human toll, the uh, effect it's having on, on the world and the way we see ourselves. And uh, I think it's a reaffirmation of core values that, hope, that should guide us, principal values that should guide us in our interactions with other nations and with other people. And I think this is called into question or an opportunity perhaps to examine that. And of course, there's the danger and the suffering of the refugees, the people being attacked. So our thinking is very much with, with them and with their situation and about the larger implications as well. Just before we begin, I'd like just to read one, uh, one Psalm, one Tila, a brief Psalm. This is Psalm number 70. for the leader of David, Lahaskir, hasten, O God, to save me, O Lord, to aid me. Let those who seek my life be frustrated and disgraced. Let those who wish me harm fall back in shame. Let those who say, aha, aha, turn back because of their frustration. But let all who seek you be glad and rejoice in you. Let those who are eager for your deliverance always say, extol be God. I am poor and needy. O God, hasten to me. You are my help and my rescuer. O Lord, do not delay. With that, I'll turn it over to Rabbi Dr. Mays. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silver. Um, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be here together with all of those who have shown up today, um, who are watching in the various media streams. Um, it's great always to be teaching and to be learning these texts. It's not always great to be doing such under such complicated circumstances. Um, I had the great honor in 2019 of traveling to Ukraine together with my teacher, Arthur Green, and a bunch of other sort of fellow travelers and students of Hasidut. And on that trip, now approaching its third year anniversary, um, we actually visited the kever, the grave of the person um, whose Torah we will be thinking about today um, and to be thinking with today. Here it is. You can see that it says that Sion of Harav HaKadosh Rabbi Nachum Mi Chernobyl. Um, it's actually in the Ch Chernobyl nuclear zone. 
um, you have to uh, get an official or had to get an official uh, um, permission to go. They check your passport. They check you for radiation on the way out. Um, and it's next to a, I think of what was a former Soviet intake office or a post office or something like that. And it's this small little brick building right next door. And the name is written there for those who know to look. Otherwise, it's not really on any maps. And in a certain sense, it feels like it almost mirrors the devastation of these Hasidic communities that once thrived and really um, were the heart, Ukraine was the heartland of 19th century Hasidism and indeed of its birth, the cradle of its birthplace in the 18th century. Um, and we'll talk about that in just one moment. So I'm gonna share again in just a minute um, once I talk a little bit more about Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl. Um, so Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, um, who is born around 1729, 1730, that's the year of his birth date, and it seems to be correct, who lives until 1797, is a, a luminary of the early Hasidic world. His book, the Me'or Enayim, published in Slavata in 1798, is published many dozens of times throughout the 19th, the late 18th and early 19th centuries, throughout the 20th century, and now in the 21st century is still in print. Um, this book, which is in one volume, sometimes it's in two volumes, contains, like many Hasidic books, homilies on the parasha, um, and a collection of ethical teachings around the book Avot, the, um, the section of the uh, uh, of the Mishnah dealing with um, rabbinic ethics. Um, this is a remarkable work of early Hasidic theology that clusters around a set of themes. And we'll talk about those in just a minute. Um, it's actually just been translated by Arthur Green and you can purchase it now. It's called The Light of the Eyes. And it is a, um, it's a great edition of this book in English with very, very, very useful footnotes. It's something that I commend to all of you. So Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, before he was of Chernobyl, grew up in Norinsk, which is near um, Zhitomir. Um, he's actually mentioned in a 1795 census of Chernobyl. So we know he's there in the 1790s and he'd probably been there for a couple of decades before. Um, he comes from a distinguished, but not that distinguished rabbinic family. He's married to a woman named Sarah, who we know has an even more distinguished lineage. Um, but Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl becomes who he is, not by dint of his family, but by dint of his teachers. He is a student of the Magid of Mezrich, um, an important Hasidic thinker who dies in 1772. Um, it is possible that Menachem Nachum met the Baal Shem Tov, although it's hard to confirm those reports. He really is a student of the Magid of Mezrich, and it's his teachings that he carries forward. Indeed, Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl wasn't a town rav. He wasn't a rabbi. He was a rabbi in the sense that he was a religious teacher, but he wasn't a rav in the sense of having to give halachic psak. He didn't deal much with those particular issues. What he dealt with was sermons. He dealt with homilies, which also means that he dealt with the uplifting of souls and the transformative pedagogy of Hasidic education. He was a preacher. Um, Hasidism, you might say, is born in Ukraine. 
If you look at the Hasidic map, Mezhebush, Mezrich, Zhitomir, Polnoya, Nemirov, you could go on and on and on. Hasidism is born in Ukraine. These are the founding towns. These are the places that its founding figures lived, died, and taught their teachings. And Menachem Nachum is among them. He had two sons, of which one died early. The other, Mordechai, had many sons, um, all of whom became leaders after him, and all of whom took on the last name Tversky or Tversky. Um, there are many, many, many de descendants of the Tversky dynasty. Um, many of them can trace back their lineage to one of the uh, one of the many sons of Mordechai of Chernobyl, and the Tversky family was a um, one of the two one of the two families that dominated Ukrainian Hasidism all the way up until the 20th century. It changed in the mid-1920s and 1930s, but up until that point, for the past 150 years, the Torsky family had been the dominant face of Ukrainian Hasidism. So who was Menachem Nachum in addition to his biography? He was a teacher. And what did he teach? You might say that there is one central message at the heart of Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl's book. And it's a very simple message. Everything is God. Everything is God. How do you come to this awareness? How do you come to this realization? You come to this realization or this awareness, what he describes as dot, awareness, through careful attention to the world around you. Nothing is without divinity. That means that no part of the self, none of our character traits, whether they are the things of which we are proud or the things of which we are less proud, our midot, none of those are without divinity. No experience is left behind. All states of being, whether they are those moments of spiritual illumination or those moments that we feel like we are constricted, all of that is divinity too. Not to mention the physical world around us. Cups, chairs, books, birds, animals, trees. The world shimmers with divinity. Closely related is Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl's emphasis on the enduring power of love, of love for God, of love for others, of love for the world around us, and love for the self. Intertwined with that is his emphasis on the paramount value of joy. God is attained not through fasting, not through carving away parts of the self, not through transcending the physical world, but through embracing the physical world, through embracing the self, through working hard on the self, but through embracing it at the same time. And the way that one does that is through a steady perspective of joyous optimism. Another key message, striving for dvekut for connection with the divine 
even amid the ordinary. And not only even amid the ordinarily, ordinary, but precisely through the ordinary. The quotidian, the seemingly banal, the mundane, all actions are opportunities for stepping into God's presence. So even though the Magid of Mesrich, Rabbi Dover Friedman, is the primary teacher of Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, this cluster of teachings feels very much like the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, who dies in 1760 and is considered, at least in a certain sense, to be the founder of Hasidism. Arthur Green, when he teaches about Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, describes him as Ne'eman um, Lashitat Habesht, as sort of faithful to the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. And I think there's a lot in that. I think he's undoubtedly right about this. You might say that the, the essential teaching, the religious message of the Baal Shem Tov continues to echo and reverberate within the words of Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl. Okay, so today I'd like us to look at three teachings from Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, all of which cluster around the theme of resilience. The first has to do with the ups and downs of religious life. The ups and downs, the sort of peregrinations of the soul, going through moments of expanded consciousness only to be thrown back into the depths to return once more. Seeing those journeys not as something of which to be afraid, but of something to embrace. That's the first. The second is the necessity of embracing that which is broken as a source of growth. Embracing that which is broken as a necessary source of growth. The third, the third homily that we'll be looking at has to do with the power of peace and dialogue. If Martin Buber famously describes the interpersonal encounter of I and thou as the revelation of divinity, like many things, he is there, Martin Buber, deeply authentic to the teaching of Hasidism. And you'll see that something very similar is is, um is articulated by Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, the revelatory power of peace and dialogue. So I do, I highlight these teachings and bring them for our discussion with two very important crises in mind. The first obviously is the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine and the tremendous human suffering that is already following in the wake of those military actions. And the second, is the ecological catastrophe through which we are living through in slow time. Just because they unfold in slow time doesn't make these any less real. Resilience is going to be key in both of these respects. Now, resilience is often bandied about as something that is taught to people in order for them to accept the status quo. One of the things that I love so much about Hasidism is that it refuses to accept the status quo, while also understanding that that is what you have to work with as the beginning step. You might say that Hasidism 
keeps one eye trained on the world as it is, as the starting place for religious growth or social transformation or whatever it might be. But the other eye is perennially trained on the world as it can be. And our journey takes place in between those two, trying to bring them closer together, trying to bring into alignment the world as it is with the world as it can or ought to be. I just want to hold there for a moment and ask if there are any questions about what I've said, the brief introductions, those key themes. What is Hasidism? People who are in the Zoom room are free to unmute themselves. And mm -hmm. if you're joining us on Facebook, there are quite a few people watching there now. You're free to type your comments in under the video. And if you prefer to use the chat box on Zoom, we can also read what you say. And if I ever say anything that doesn't make sense, or if I say something that is confusing, or if I use a word that you're not quite sure what it means in this particular context, um, please just say so. If you have the question, I'm sure almost everyone else also has the question. Usually that's how it is. Good. Are there any questions? Did any come in off of, no? Okay, fantastic. Then let's continue and let's go right to the texts. Let's spend a little bit of time with the religious legacy of Menachem Nachem of Chernobyl. Um, okay. Are those texts live? Everyone can see them? Excellent. All right. So we begin with this text about the natural peregrinations of religious life. Yes, that things go up and things go down, and that's just the way that things are, and that that's not a bug, that's a feature. He maps this teaching on to a phrase which I think will probably be familiar to many people here. Kol asher Hashem nishma. Everything that Hashem has said, we will fulfill, we will do, we will act, we will, any other number of translations, we will hear, we will understand, we will comprehend any other number of interpretations. You could write a whole book about different readings of Shemot Kaftal Zayin, uh, Exodus 24-7. And, and usually, um, like many other psukim, like many other verses in the Bible, <clears throat> people's readings about this particular verse tell you something very deep about their religious philosophy. If they say, first you act, and then you'll understand, and the understanding is what comes later, and Judaism is really about action as opposed to uh, as opposed to understanding, and maybe the understanding will never come, but that's okay. That's one reading of this. There are many sorts of other readings. And you'll see that, like, I think Menachem Menachem of Chernobyl is very much of this. He's putting his sort of central card on the table, which is every religious journey is two steps back, three steps forward. And that the courage is to keep moving forward, even though the journey is not linear. Um, another great Ukrainian Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, said it as well. Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav gives a, an amazing um, description for religious growth, which we often want to believe is um, linear. We often experience it as being cyclical or circular. And he gives us a way of thinking about it as being both. He describes the ascent toward God or to who we want to be or the world as we want it to be as opposed to the world as it is, whatever it is for which we are striving as climbing up a spiral staircase. 
Now, the thing with climbing up a spiral staircase is that you spend half the time in the dark, quite literally. You're underneath the platform that you're reaching for. Half the time, you're basking in the sun and everything's great. and You can see the goal. And the rest of the time, you are, as it were, in the dark night of the soul. And so Rebbe Nachman's message is, in that moment, don't forget that even though you can't necessarily see things, you can't see the goal. You lose the forest for the trees. You feel like it's been taken away from you, like the rug has been pulled out from underneath you, like the world that you thought was stable is no longer stable. Don't forget that growth can happen even there. Just keep walking up the staircase, and once more, the daylight will come. So the classical teachings from the Talmud says that when the Jewish people say this, um, I'm reading here in the Hebrew, who taught my children this amazing principle, this amazing secret that even the angels, uh, that the angels are able to use. So he asks a question. Rabbi Nachum, Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl asks a question. How can you do something before you've been told what to do? It's a good question. If you tell your child, do it, okay, they'll ask, what is it? Then they probably won't do it. But that's the first question. How can you do something without having first heard it, understood it, grasped it in its textures? And then the question, which is deeper into the meaning and the meat of this, what's so great? Why does God take such joy, such pride in the fact that they are saying, we will do, we will act before we understand, before we hear, before we reflect, however we wish to translate that. So he goes on. The truth is that a human being cannot stand eternally on a single rung because the animals run and retreat. They come and they depart. Now I've translated that verse literally. So he begins with a principle, one that I think we might know from our own lives as well. You can't stay in the same place forever. Every person is always moving, going up or going down. How does he get this from that verse? This verse, if you'll remember from the opening chapter of Ezekiel, it's a part of the vision of the chariot, that strange theophany, that strange revelation in which Ezekiel sees many odd things, including wheels within wheels, some sort of flashing light show. There are clouds, there are fires, there are odd noises, 
and there are animals that run and retreat. The reading that you find consistently in Hasidic sources is not the animals run and retreat, but chiyut, ratzo veshov. Chiyut meaning vitality or life force. It expands and contracts. Our vitality expands and contracts. You'll see in just a moment, he continues that. Dehainu, kshuhu davuk v'ashem yitvarach, umargish chiyut v'ta'anuk. When one is connected to the divine, one experiences a feeling of vitality and pleasure. And yet, that feeling is not eternal. Ve'acharkach nistalek ve'nofel mimadregato. And yet, it is always the case that that happens, that, that, that one falls from that state. And when that happens, that feeling of vitality also diminishes. Okay. One of the great debates that you find already in the time of the rabbis in between Jewish and, say, Hellenistic, Greco-Roman sources is why are human beings not created perfect? Why couldn't God create a statically perfect world? Why couldn't God even create a statically perfect Torah? in the sense that it seems like there's always stuff that's getting added and taken back. And if you haven't read Christine Hayes's book on um, what's divine about divine law, I recommend it to everyone. You see that there, the Greek idea of nomos, this is kind of static thing, as opposed to the um, Jewish ideal of a law, of a Torah that is always growing and changing and is defined by its flexibility as opposed to its stasis is really baked into the cake of what Judaism is all about. Here you find it applied to the religious life of the person. And Rabbi Menachem Nachem asks the question, There are, as it were, great religious teachings, great religious secrets, not in the sense of esoteric knowledge, that's not what he means here. You might say that there are deep teachings hidden beneath the surface about why it is that we need to go up and to go down. Why do we need to go through these journeys? Why can't God just create things all perfect, hunky-dory, and static? I want you to listen carefully because he gives you two answers. He only says one. He doesn't say two. But he gives you two answers and they're not the same. And I want you to think about what the difference might be. So, v'tam echad. Who, um, v'tam If you want to go somewhere higher, if you want to attain a higher madrega, a higher step, a higher rung, a higher station, first, you have to evacuate the previous station in order to be able to go higher. First, you need to empty it out. You need to let go of the place where you are in order to go higher. Um, if any of you have gone rock climbing, something that I used to do a lot in high school, 
there's always this moment where you are holding onto the wall, sometimes with very precarious little handholds. And if you want to go anywhere other than just hanging out on that wall face, you want to be able to get to the top or not, you, you have to let go. You have to let go of that momentary stability. And in doing so, you can then reach, but you have to let go, which is extremely terrifying. But that's the only way that growth can happen. Let go of the present in order to reach for the future. That's one answer. We fall because from that, transformation can happen such that we're able to lean into a better future. Many people in the time of COVID have reminded us of the at least possible translation, and I think there are many cases in which this is true, of the word mashber, which in modern Hebrew means a, um, a calamity or a tra not a tragedy, but um, some sort of very difficult catastrophe almost, um, as being related to the ancient word mashber, um, which is a birth stool at least in some places in the Hebrew Bible. From pain, new life can be born. I think what you find here in Rabbi Menachem Nachum's personal formulation is that sometimes things have to get broken or diminished in order for transformation to be possible. Things have to get shuffled. That's the first answer. You might call this the forward-leaning answer. Tell me if you think the second answer is complementary or synonymous, or if it's different. Okay, so this, he doesn't tell you. Now I'm going to give you the second answer, but here it is. adam mimadregato. One must in, even in the state that one has fallen to take strength reaching for God on that level. In the place that one is, because one must believe that all, I'm sorry, the whole world is filled with divinity. This is the watchword of early Hasidism. Everything is God, not just in the sense of everything can teach you something about God or everything has Torah, but in the sense of a world that shimmers with divinity, a world that is suffused with divine vitality. Sometimes that's described as shefa, um, as this kind of energy pouring forth. Sometimes it's described as divine vitality. Sometimes it's described as the holy sparks. Sometimes it's the letters of creation. Sometimes it's the kind of water metaphor of the mayan. These are all sort of ways of painting this theological fan of the many different ways for describing a simple truth that everything in this world is divine. 
no place is devoid of God, of him. That phrase, which is often paired together, which is a biblical phrase, it comes from Isaiah's vision of God in the temple, which already in that, there's this funny, you might say tension, Isaiah sees God seated in the temple, hanging out in the temple, clothed in the temple, surrounded by angels in the temple, except the whole world is filled with God's glory. So is it the temple or is it everywhere? Hasidic thinkers pick up on that. This is often combined with a phrase taken from the Tikkuni Zohar, um, a later stratum of the Zohar, there is no place devoid of God's glory, late atar panui mine, no place is devoid of him. Um, I should say parenthetically that um, the early manuscripts of the Tikkuni Zohar don't have this phrase, they have a related phrase, late ever or avar panui mine. There is no limb devoid of God, which actually makes sense in the context of a teaching which is about mapping the divine name of God onto the human body. This phrase that we have here doesn't make as much sense. And, and I think it's an amazing idea. The human body itself reflects divinity. The way he is using it here means that even afilu b'madriga shuhuachshav ba'asher husham, the place where you are, God is present there. Rak shuhu metzumtsam me'od. It's just constricted. God is, as it were, less revealed. The attenuation of the human mind means that we cannot see the divine there in the same way. And yet, God is equally present in that moment. God is equally present in that experience. God is equally present in that place. So, here's a question. Is that the same? Is the first answer? You can vote yes, you can vote no. You can tell me why. So Deborah Cantor. Could you go off mute and tell us? Yeah. Am I am I unmuted now? Okay. We hear you loud and clear. Okay, great, great, great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that obviously they're related, but in the first um in the first interpretation, um it, it's asking something of us um that you know, we need to take some leaps, we need, need to take some risk um, and let go, mm -hmm. uh, even momentarily. Mm -hmm. um, and in the second instance, um, and, and that's sort of like what we do, that's an action that we would have to take. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is um, a realization. Um, and that um, maybe we come to that realization in that moment of risk, or maybe we come to that realization just when we feel pressed down. Mm. Um, uh, but that realization, it's like, you know, you have to be hungry to appreciate something. Um, and this is, you know, hungry in a deep, in a deep mm -hmm. sense. Um, so that's a, I, they're related, but not, not the same one, I think is more um, internal. 
Amazing. Thank you, Deborah. So the first one is about risk taking. The second one is maybe a sort of like, like a diamond that's getting squeezed. We have this moment of reflection that is born out from that hunger, from that yearning to create meaning, to find meaning, to reflect meaning into being through that experience that has been not handed to us, but in which we find ourselves, if I understood you correctly. Yeah, exactly. Marvelous. Any other thoughts? Thank you, Deborah. I guess in a certain sense, my thinking on this dovetails with Deborah's comments, but it goes in a slightly different direction, which is that one of the things that bothers me about the first interpretation, and I find so complicated and difficult about it, is that it's always so forward thinking. I love that it's forward thinking, right? We always want to right, build back better, as it were. That's great. It's very important. On the other hand, one of the reasons I was drawn to Hasidism is that it offers a language of spiritual growth and of spiritual living and of theological living that is optimistic and yet does not sugarcoat or saccharinize our being. And by that, I mean it doesn't seek to tamp over human suffering and pretend that it doesn't exist. One of the classical retributions or one of the classical rebukes of pantheism or panentheism is, have you ever heard of the problem of evil? Have you ever heard of the problem of suffering? And one of the things that Hasidism underscores is, first of all, evil is a human phenomenon of what human beings do with the divine vitality that has been bestowed upon them. Second of all, suffering is part of the nature of our world. That's unavoidable. All we can do is change the way that we orient toward it. And the way that we seek to create meaning and to act with a sense of love and kindness and presence, even in those times of constriction, of falling, of destabilization, where to say that the whole world is filled with God's glory is a difficult row to hoe. What Hasidism says, that is that in those moments, recognizing the complexity of them, whether it is personal or the world stage, one keeps one eye on that, on that complexity and on that brokenness and knows that it is not, and the other eye on the fact that it does not always have to remain there. That's why I like both of these answers as complementing one another. One is forward-looking. The other is deeply, deeply not accepting, but acknowledging. Acknowledging the complexity of the current moment. And with that, to say, I stand in God's presence even so. So this, and we'll continue here in the text, is how Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl understands na'ase kodem lenishma here in the Hebrew, and you can see it in the English, even though I 
didn't quite line them up. The paragraph on the right, in the English, this is the doing or fulfillment that comes before the hearing. What does it mean to do before or to fulfill before we hear or before we understand? It means to have the commitment to serve God even in those moments of constriction, even in those moments of attenuation, even in those moments of a loss of stability or framework, even in those moments where what we thought we could take for granted in terms of a handhold or a foothold, even as those collapse, na'ase, we act. And then, nishma, we come to a state of understanding. We learn from that, or at least we can not by avoiding the brokenness, not by avoiding the complexity, not by avoiding that loss of stability, but by accepting it, acknowledging it, and continuing to strive, moving forward, not with the sense that the world must forever stay as it is, but knowing that that is the point of departure for our journey. Naase kodem lenishma, we will do, is an act of faith, of saying, we act with courage and compassion. We act with love and kindness. We act in a way that brings us closer to the divine, even amidst the darkness of that shadow. And then, we come to a greater state of understanding. So rather than a, you might say, a kind of um, doctrine of orthopraxis in which first you come to the doing and then you come to the understanding, he has opened it up without changing in a certain sense, a key part of that teaching, which is that yes, action is very important. And there is something of an understanding that will come later. But the action here is one of finding God in one's present state of being. Not through eternal acceptance, but through knowing that you have to see things as they are. You have to embrace them as they are. It's true of our interpersonal work. It's true of work as parents and educators. It's true of being a student. It's true of being a human being in this world. First you acknowledge, and then you continue to strive. Okay, I'm gonna pause here for just a second. Thoughts, reflections, questions. As we move from this to the, this teaching on the natural ups and downs and the journey of religious life of going up and going down to this teaching about the necessity of brokenness, which is our next theme. Good, so we'll continue. Um, the next teaching that we're going to look at in brief is, it's the first homily, the first drasha, the first sermon in the Ore Naim. And uh, the book doesn't really have a theological introduction. Many Hasidic books do not. 
So in a certain sense, sometimes the Hasidic, the, sorry, the, the homily at the very beginning functions as a roadmap, as an introduction um, to the, uh, the essence of that book. And I think it's true here. So he begins with the first book of the, the first verse of the book of Bereshit, the first book of the Hebrew Bible. Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shemayim first two psukim. Um, that in the beginning or in the beginning of God's creation of the world, God created the heavens and the, and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Uh, who knows what that means? So what Rabbi Menachem Nachum does is swiftly asserts what he sees as the cardinal teaching of Hasidism. Bereshit, he reads, not as in the beginning, but as Bereshit, with the beginning or that which was at the beginning. With the Torah, God creates the world. This is, I mean, it's not his innovation. It's right there in Bereshit Rabbah, in um, the rabbinic exegesis of the book of Genesis. It's actually the first passage there as well. The Torah is described as God's pedagogue, as God's teacher, as many other things, but this becomes a, um, you might say it becomes a, um, a lodestar for thinking about the Torah as something so much greater than the five books of Moses written on a physical parchment that lives in the ark. The Torah is that. But Torah, in its greater sense of God's wisdom, is the infinite reservoir of potentiality, the infinite reservoir of meaning, the infinite reservoir of creativity and inspiration. That's what God uses to create the world. God doesn't look into a book that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That kind of makes no sense. In rabbinic literature, already you have this association of Torah with God's wisdom, which is so much bigger. And in the Hasidic canon, it gets even bigger and bigger, such that the Torah absorbs more and more of existence until such that everything is created through the Torah. Therefore, the power of the maker remains within the maid. Yeah, in other words, both God and God's Torah are imprinted within everything in the world. What's his proof text? Adam, Zot HaTorah Adam. Because people are Torahs, or people reflect the Torah. Now, of course, he knows, I'm sure many of you know, that the end of that verse is, it's a teaching about what happens when people die in the tent and then you have to figure out what is pure and what's not pure. Okay, he's taking the first part of that verse and drawing our eyes to the fact that human beings, just like everything else in the world, each and every human being is a unique manifestation of that infinite well of divine potentiality that takes form in that singular being of the human. Um, each and every human being, you might say, is like a snowflake that crystallizes 
that divine potential in a slightly different way. And then he draws this association between Torah and God such that God's vitality is found in all things. Everything is filled with God's animating force. Why don't we see it? Because it's attenuated, because it's made smaller. But if you open up your eyes, you can indeed become attuned to a world that shimmers with divinity. At the very end of this, he says in this paragraph, you have it in Hebrew and the English, he deploys this verse of Ecclesiastes, Yitaron ha'or mina God creates a world in which there is darkness, in which there is complexity, because great is the light that emerges from the darkness. That just sounds like a silly truism until you translate it as greater is the light that emerges from the darkness. As you find in medieval literature, mina choshech mamash, truly from amid the darkness. Why? Because from the brokenness, things can be changed. The brokenness is also a revelation of divinity. He then transitions to talking about Joseph going into Egypt, Mitzrayim, not as a physical place, but as taken as a kind of um, symbol for all of those moments of when we, like he said earlier, descend from our wrong or when things get destabilized, Mitzrayim is that kind of exile of consciousness. Mitzar Yam, Mitzar Yam means the straightened place, the place of squeezing and complexity. That's how it functions in the Kabbalistic imagination. We all go to Mitzrayim on a daily basis because we go through these natural ups and downs of religious life. You find this in Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi's Tanya, where he says, um, everyone has to see themselves as if they've gone out of Mitzrayim. And he says that this is something that we do not only once a year during Pesach, but each and every day. So the lifting out of Mitzrayim, the lifting out of Egypt is something that happens to us on a daily basis. Okay. Um, if you look here in the English, um, halfway down the paragraph on the left, this is also the meaning of Jacob saw that there was produce in Egypt. Um, in Hebrew, he sees Jacob, sees that there is food in Egypt, so he sends Joseph down there uh, and sends the brothers down there at this point. Um, why? Well, one of it, I, you might say, is uh, practical. They need food. In the mythic retelling that you find here, Jacob sends the children down to Mitzrayim in order to find something that is hidden there. Yosef, <laughs> who's there. And he understands shever, not in the sense of foodstuffs or produce, but in the sense of shvira, brokenness. There is Torah there but it's broken. There are broken sparks, shards of divinity that need to be raised up. This is the tablets and the broken tablets. You'll see later on in the same teaching, he says, the whole tablets, we can understand why they rest in the ark. But the Talmud says that the broken tablets rest in the ark as well. Why is that? 
because broken things have to become, have to be brought into the equation as well. The fullness of divinity is only expressed when we bring together that which appears to be whole along with that which appears to be broken. So the children of Jacob here go on this quest to find God, to find their brother, to find the lost aspects of divinity, even in that complicated, broken, and shattered place. They go down in order to collect something, to hold on to it, to nurture it, and to allow it to grow. Okay, you have much more of the text. I invite you to learn it at your own um, leisure and to enjoy it, and um, hopefully to enjoy it, learn it with someone that you love in these moments. I want to spend a few, just about, say, two minutes talking about this last text, and then I'm going to wrap things up and open up a little bit of space for reflection. Um, when I got the call asking me to teach Fredricia about this, this was immediately the source that I went to, um, this next teaching, because it's about the power of peace. I then decided that the other two needed to come first because peace is amazing, but first you have to think about the brokenness and the complexity and all the other things of our current moment and not to efface them. But on the other hand, you can't accept them, right? It's the same thing that we've been talking about. So he begins his opening gambit of this teaching, um, which is about Pinchas, um, as the complicated arbiter of peace. And, you know, on the one hand, he's given the covenant of peace. And on the other hand, he is a spear-slaying warrior. Okay, not our question for, for now. Um, but he begins with a, uh, almost like a peroration on the power of peace, um, taken from Midrash Tanhuma, um, that peace is a name for Torah. It's a name of God. It's a name of prayer. It's a name for many different things. We know the famous teaching in the Mishnah. Um, God found a vessel, and the only vessel that God could find that could hold blessing is peace. Peace is necessary for human flourishing, but it's also necessary for divine flourishing. And peace is what we give to people as we say hello to them and what we wish them on their return, um, meaning their return to the journey. So he ties this in us to the association between Pinchas and Eliyahu, um, Pinchas and Eliyahu and the sort of law of biblical conservation of characters get associated early in rabbinic literature for a number of different reasons. Again, not our question for now, but Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl keys in to the fact that when God says that God will one day send us Eliyahu Hanavi, God says, Sholeach lachem at Eliyahu Hanavi, God is, God sends, God will send. It's a present tense noun, at least in the way that he is understanding it. Meaning, and this is how the Gemara understands it in certain respect, in certain passages as well, that God is always sending. Not just will send, but always sending. So then, Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl says, why is God always sending? It's not just because there's this messianic figure waiting at the gates of the city, as it were, waiting for us to get our act together, rather than an external force um, 
Menachem Nachum says, you, me, all of us have Eliyahu within us. And that's what drives forward our religious yearning, our fiery yearning for the divine. Remember, Elijah goes up to heaven in the fiery chariot. Our fiery yearning for the divine and for a life of integration comes from that quality born within us of Elijah. He then reads, okay, Elijah is associated with the Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. He reads Mashiach not as the anointed one, but as Messiah. Conversation. Meaning what? Messiah or Mashiach is that moment in which we bring into alignment our thought and our speech. It's an Elijah moment. It's an imaginative messianic moment when we bring our heart and our mind and our body into alignment with one another. That's what the future time will be. And every time we can do that with a spirit of integ integrity and authenticity in the current moment, that is building up what he calls komat hamashiach, the kind of superstructure or the structure of the Messiah through that single action of heartfelt integration. And this is not just something that happens within ourselves. Language is a gift given such that we can converse with God, but language is a restorative process that is given to us to effect bonds and to connect with other human beings. So I understand this third text, truly in the spirit of Buber, to be about the power of peace and dialogue to transform what could be yet one more weapon in our arsenal, the weapon of the word, into a force to reach across differences in the yearning for a sense of honest and earnest connection with one of our deepest properties of language. So to review, religious life, like life in our world, is up and down, and it is not linear. We look to the future and yet embrace the present because it is through embracing the present that we can create a better future. Embracing the present means seeing that which is broken as a potential source for growth. Part of the way that we lean into that better future has to do with our internal restructurings, and it also has to do with the way that we live with other human beings, and perhaps other more than human beings, using the qualities of peace, using the qualities of language to create a moment that is messianic, not in the sense of looking to the future, but in the sense of speaking and acting with integrity, authenticity, and presence in 
the present. Thank you all so much for your time and attention. I know we're out of time. Um, please follow up with me by email if you have any questions. I'm always available to talk. And thank you, Rabbi Silver. Um, and thank you, Tadrisha, for hosting me this morning and afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, Rabbi Silver, if you'd like to close us out with another prayer. Another prayer. Okay, I hadn't. <laughs> Let me find another prayer. I... I'd like to remind everyone that we will be continuing this series tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern with Rabbi Ellie Fisher, who will be speaking about uh, the human stories in Halacha, going over some responsa originating in Ukraine, and also on Thursday with Ms. Dahlia Wolfson, who will be showing us a bit of Jewish Ukraine through the eyes of Shalom Aleichem. All right, I'll end with another psalm. Um, psalm number 20. Lanatzeach mizmogu David. Yancha Adonai biyom tzara, yisagev chashem erohe Yaakov. Yishrach ezrucha mikodesh, umitziyon yisadeka. Yizkol kol minchotecho, aviyoratcha yidash nesewa. David. May the Lord answer you in time of trouble. The name of Jacob's God keep you safe. May God send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May God receive the tokens of your meal offerings and approve your burnt offerings, Selah. May God grant you your desire to fulfill your every plan. May we shout for joy and victory, arrayed by standards in the name of our God. May God fulfill your every wish. I know that God will give victory to God's anointed, will answer, from heavenly sanctuary with the mighty victories of God's right arm. They call on chariots, on horses. We call on the name of God. They collapse and be fallen. We, we will rally and gather strength. O Lord, grant us victory. May the King answer us when we call. Thank you all for participating. Um, thank you, Noah. Thank you again, Rabbi Mays. Noah, do you have a last word? Just Thank you and be well, everyone. Shalom. Shalom.